Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm excited to let you know that the second annual online near-death experience summit is coming up this June 23rd with speakers, Dr. Raymond Moody, Lisa Smart, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Dr. Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, Nancy Rines, Howard Storm, Paul Perry, David Ditchfield, Leslie Lupo, Kimberly Clark Sharp, Dr. Tony Chicoria, John Burke, Jose Hernandez, and me, your host. There are plenty of videos to check out ahead of time, but please look at this link and we'd love to have you join. You can get your questions answered by the speakers at this event. And thank you. Thank you so much for your support of my memoir, Angels in the OR, which launched last month. It is such a pleasure to connect with readers, and many people have enjoyed the Audible. So if you don't have an Audible subscription, you can have three, 30 days um, for free and get my book that way. But I would love to hear from you, and I hope you enjoyed this recording. You can check out these interviews on my YouTube channel. I'm converting many of them over to podcast, but enjoy. Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I am here with Jeff Olson. I'm very excited to talk about his new book and also his near-death experience, but the spiritual journey and what life is like now for you. And I'd like to begin, though, with your newest book, which is Knowing. And why did you write this after the first two books, and what are you hoping to explain to people through this book? Oh, that's awesome, Tricia, and thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you and such an honor. Knowing is actually a compilation of the first two books, and the reason I did it is, is it, this is the 20-year anniversary of the accident, and so, so many people had read the books and loved the books that I wanted to do not only a, a compilation, but produce it in a hardcover, you know, so it could be a library edition, collector's book that included both I Knew Their Hearts and Beyond Mile Marker 80. But what I've done is I've gone into deeper insights on that. I mean, I've really expanded on things that I may not have necessarily been comfortable talking about the first time around. And then I've also expanded it too. So there's, um, you know, there's six or eight additional chapters beyond that of what's gone on since. Uh, and so, you know, it's, 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 it, it includes the near-death experience, but it's the life experience. It's like, what do we do after the fact? How do we yes. discuss all this and the spiritual journey, as you said? Yeah, and that's great. And I definitely have found that the more I've started talking and connecting with others, I feel more confident talking about things that I didn't feel confident talking about before. What are some of those things that you, over time, have felt more at ease discussing? Well, like there's a lot of things. Some of it... Um, had to do with my experience on the other side and 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 really just digesting how do I put into words being held in the arms of God now I could say that and and many people you know will understand that or they'll get that but what it did for me is it literally kind of turned my beliefs inside out upside down and yet expanded them in ways where it took me it took me a decade just to digest that in other words I grew up in a conservative Christian home, you know, there was one way, God was the final judge and I was probably in trouble based on how, <laughs> you know, just not being perfect and not doing everything right. Um, but boy, my experience, the unconditional love that I experienced and the way that transformed and then also how that applies in our lives. You know, not that I can run down to the corner and rob the bank now because everything's okay. Right. But how do we take all that love and all that freedom and what do we do with it to really make a difference here? Yeah, that love I try to explain in so many different ways. And it, do you ever come across people who you look at them and you think, oh, that's how I used to believe. They're behaving exactly me pre-near-death experience. Like, who exactly were you before your near-death experience? All the time. I mean, I, I run into that all the time. And yet, you know, I, I realize that anyone I meet is simply a reflection of, of me. I mean, if something bothers yeah. me, I get to take a look at myself. <laughs> but, but I was... Um, I was always somewhat sensitive, but before the accident, I was a red personality, you know, driven career guy. I mean, I was running my own ad agency. We were winning a lot of big awards and landing big clients. And it was it was kind of a game of, you know, 
make the team, get the job, get the girl, get the car, get the house. And, um, and, and I was also very judgmental. You know, I mean, I, I, I felt that I'm on the right path. I've got it right. Everyone else, you know, bless their hearts. You know, that's a good Texas term, but, but bless <laughs> their hearts. They, they're doing the best they can, but, but I'm right. They're wrong. And I'm grateful for that. But boy, you know, I, I was very, very, uh, judgmental. Yes. So we all can be, I think no matter who we are, that's like the natural human inclination to put ourselves up against other people. Like I was a college student when I had my near death experience. So anyone who wasn't in university, anyone who, you know, wasn't at this big university that I was at or didn't dress the way I dressed, then I just looked at them as not as cool as me, <laughs> you know, and, and these are very silly childish thoughts. But but that's just how I looked at people and how I thought about them if they didn't read the same books that I read. And, and then after the near-death experience, I saw people's hearts. Like I saw that that was the most important thing. Like I saw how good they were and how their connection to the light, you know, was it a strong connection? Did they pray for others? Did they, you know, were they at peace within themselves? Did they love themselves? Did they love others? And I, I love what you said in one of your interviews about love and you were asked a very specific question on the other side. What was that exact question about love? Oh, wow. And, 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 and I'll tell you that the, the question was, to what degree have you learned to love? But I think the poignantness, you know, the, the, the power of that question was it was after I was wandering around the hospital, and I say wandering around, like moving freely, my spirit was out of my body. And this is what shifted me probably forever as I was seeing, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the patients, the families of the patients, but I was really seeing them. Um, I wasn't looking at, oh, wow, look, there's a heroin addict. Well, that's their own fault. They made those bad choices. I was seeing everyone as these glorious, divine, perfect beings and realizing, wow, look what they've taken on in their life experience and how beautiful and how courageous and how powerful they are because of it. So judgment and comparison went out the window very, very early as I was, I mean, everyone from, you know, the heroin addict, but also the saintly grandmother and, and just all of a sudden we were all in this together having a different, unique experience surrounded in unconditional love and I was seeing it clearly without judgments and that's what was cool. We are so much more loved than we realize. Like that's a message that I keep wanting to connect with other people. And I think it's especially hard. I, I come from, you know, a uh, Christian family as well. That's pretty judgmental. And I think they looked at me at the time of my accident because I was agnostic and kind of this wild college student experimenting with drugs. And they were like, surely she's going to hell. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure that that was their, their thought about me and that I experienced this love and this unconditional Oh, this holding of me in this sense that, you know, I was perfect as I was to God and I was so deeply loved in a way that my family could never have loved me, that I could never have loved anyone. And that that feeling was just so healing. And what I wanted to come back and share with them is like, hey, we're all loved, you know, like just lay down the judgments. Let's just be in love. And and it was very disorienting. Did you how did you integrate that feeling of love initially into your life? Well, I think it was easy on a very personal level, but the, the struggle was, wow, I want all that. I want to feel here all that love, all that connection, all that oneness. And, you know, I outlined this mostly in my second book, but I think for a long time I was searching, searching, seeking, show me that love, show me that love, I want to feel that love. And in many ways was very lost and broken and, and actually homesick, you know, longing for, gosh, can I just not die and go home and feel all that again? Because I was not finding it here, and, and yet it wasn't until I realized that I would never find it, that it had to come from within, you know? And, and, and here again, I mean, coming from the background I did, I mean, it's, it's, it's the old beautiful truth, love your neighbor as yourself. And I was running, 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 loving the neighbors, and I was looking for the neighbors to give all the love back to me, when in reality, until I loved myself, I had nothing to give. I was always going to be empty until I realized that the light was within me and that, and that I was the key to my own peace. And that's, 
we evolve and we continue to learn how to love ourselves more through every situation, through every moment. And that's something I've certainly learned. Like I'll have these moments where I think, oh yeah, I've dealt with all my childhood issues. You know, I've dealt with every, oh, I love myself so much. And then I'm just slapped down, you know, by circumstance. And I'm like, oh, I have to love myself through this. And so it is an ongoing process. And it's, have you found that like, do you? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, my wife, Tanya, she would laugh. I, I still, we all have our challenges, you know. I mean, it wasn't just weeks ago that I was picking myself up off the ground saying, oh, my gosh, you know. <laughs> you know, you just, you do, you get smacked down, and then it has to transform to not only self-love, but just, just trusting yourself and trusting the universe that this is only an experience. I'm going to learn from it. And I'm certainly going to get through it, and then I'll be bigger, better, and brighter on the other side. And so seeing it as a gift. But when things get hard, that's what I was struggling with. When it gets really hard, sometimes you don't see it as a gift. You're like, okay, this is not good. And then uh, it isn't until hindsight that we say, wow, look what I learned. You know, look what I learned from that. And we're so lucky to be connected to other people. I, I found this through teaching, but also through reaching out and writing and, and connecting with others that anytime I feel like I'm going through something difficult, I'm just like knocked down at what someone in my class is surviving or going through, you know, someone's best friend is in a bad abusive relationship or someone, you know, just was kicked out of their house. And, you know, you see all these really dire situations and students struggling, even just working a night job and coming to my class and yeah. like, yeah. okay, <laughs> humility, <laughs> you know, like it, it is a, it, it's a constant lesson to be connected to others. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there's always someone who's worse off. I mean, I, I wrote about that in both the first two books, and knowing really does touch on that. Um, of yes. how just, you know, you don't even have to look down the street and you realize, you know what? Everybody's got their challenges. And so if we can love each other more through, through it, rather than judging or comparing, we'll be far better off. So I do want you to jump in, and I'm not going to ask you to tell too much about the wreck and the accident. I know that you lost your youngest son and your wife in that accident, but I would like to hear about just the near-death experience, if you don't mind, because that's okay. what yeah, I, that's, I love to hear about. <laughs> that's easy. Yeah, it was my near-death experience was associated to the to the crash. It was a single single car rollover, and um, you know the whole family was in the car. And I was banged up really bad. Both my legs were crushed. My left leg was amputated above the knee. My back was uh, broken, but the spinal column not damaged. My rib cage was crushed. My lungs collapsed. My right arm almost torn off. The seat belt cut through me and ruptured all my insides. But it was at that moment, and I didn't even realize the injuries, but it was at the darkest moment. I knew. I couldn't move. I was losing consciousness. I was also very aware that both Tamara, my wife, and Griffin, my youngest son, were gone. I was aware at the scene that they did not make it. And um, my older son, who was seven years old, was crying hysterically. And that was the moment where I lost consciousness. Mm. And what happened, and I only, I only give that background because it was the deepest, darkest moment of my life, suddenly there was this calm and I felt light. It felt like tangible light came and surrounded me, like I was surrounded in light. I didn't experience a tunnel. It was, it was as if the tunnel came to me and just, you know, comforted me. But in that deepest, darkest, darkest moment, I felt comfort. It felt like I rose above the scene of the accident and suddenly I was fine. The pain was gone, I was able to breathe and I was even wondering, well, what, what's going on here? And it was in that exchange that all of a sudden I realized that I was not alone. My wife, who I knew was deceased at the scene of the accident, was there with me. Now, I'll touch on that a little bit. Um, that I yeah, don't, but yeah. that's how every near-death experience is slightly different. And this is, I really do believe that this is what solidifies how real they are because of the specifics that connect. So your wife was dead and then she is yeah. there with yeah. you. And I, I, you know, and I don't often talk about this because it's difficult. Um, what took Tamara's life in the accident was, was head trauma. And I knew that at the scene of the accident. It's still difficult to talk about. 
So when I say suddenly she was there, but she was there beautiful, perfect, everything was okay. She was not injured. She was glorious. And yet she was the one giving the message, uh, you've got to go back. You've got to go back. I mean, you know, you can't come. You can't stay here. You've got to go. So, you know, to see her in that glorious state, not as I had seen her at the accident, was powerful and beyond words. But also making that choice, realizing, okay, I've got to go back. I mean, here I am looking at the woman I love more than life, but I've got a little boy crying in the backseat of that car, and I've got to go back. And that's, you know, that's what I referred to. As soon as I made that decision to come back, that's when I found myself wandering around the hospital. Um, I, had, I, I had no concept of time in this most profound goodbye I would ever say. But I had been life-flighted to a level one trauma center. And yet, as soon as I made the conscious thought and said goodbye to Tamara and thought, I'm going back, I was wandering around that trauma center, seeing the doctors, the patients, the nurses, but in an incredibly new light. They were glorious brothers and sisters. In fact, they, I, I, I knew everything about them. I, I mean, I knew them as well as I knew myself. And there was this oneness, this connection that was just undeniable. It's a strange knowing, isn't it? Like, we can say that, and I know what you're talking about, because I went out of my body, and I merged with everyone in Austin. So I was in Austin at that time. And so people that I knew I began with, but then just people in the town for whatever reason. And that knowing to me, how I describe it is it's a heart knowing, but it's also just kind of a, a holistic knowing. It's like you know the whole picture. So it's not like you're judging one little moment like, oh, they did heroin. You know, it's you yeah, just see yeah. the child that they were, but it's you see it almost as a bubble. Is that how you well, felt yeah. it? Or? I mean, I, I, I saw it, but I felt it. Gosh, I was yeah. connected. In fact, and, and, and even my background, which I, I always honor my background. I have no, you know, I have no, it's been a perfect spiritual path for me, but I did have a biblical verse as I was seeing all these people and I realized the universe communicates in the language we'll understand, and so it was speaking to yes. me in Bible. But, yes. uh, but you know, the verse came as I was looking at all these unique and different souls. It, it was the famous verse that says, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. But it meant something so much deeper. I always thought, oh, that's a nice verse about being nice. But suddenly it's like, oh, I am them. I, they are me. We are literally connected as one. And so when, when you know, when when Jesus was saying, well, you know, when, when they came and said, but when did we clothe you? When did we feed you? When did we do all these things to you? What he realized is he was no better or any different than the beggar on the street who might be naked or the man in prison who had committed a severe crime. I mean, it, it, it was the oneness. And so that that verse quickly shifted to me from a nice verse about being nice to wow. It goes so, so, so much deeper than I ever imagined. And I heard something too, similar to a Bible verse. Um, I heard this and the wisdom kind of came, it flowed in in different ways. It's hard to describe, you know, how it came in, but I heard like a light that kind of came through my spirit form and it was like, be like a little child and remind them to go to nature and to be like a little child. And so you wouldn't think that college students need to be reminded of this, but we do go out to the river or meditate or just, we learn how to be more in the moment because that's what children know how to do is the power yeah. of now and the power of this singular moment and how fun and beautiful and joyful it can be. And that's how I've interpreted it. But, but yeah, that Bible verse, it never really meant that much to me until the near death experience. Yeah. So I, I yeah. know what you, I know what you yeah. mean. Yeah. The, so you traveled through the hospital, and what happened next as you were well, I, feeling this I oneness? Eventually, I eventually came to a body, a man laying on the gurney that I didn't feel anything from, which I found was very odd given the profound things I'd been experiencing. So I stepped closer to look, and that's when I realized, oh, that's, that's me. But, but that wasn't me. I was having this incredible experience, but that was my body. That was the skin suit that I'd been having this experience in and I I was really quite overcome with sadness because I knew I had to get back in but my body was an absolute wreck and and that was a new awakening too I had always taken my health and my vigor for granted I had never really considered the miracle 
that my physical body was and the things we're able to do and, and gosh, go out into nature and feel the grass and smell the trees. It's like, wow, that's a gift. And suddenly that body that would do that was not in good shape. I know that feeling. I looked when I saw the blood pouring out of my body when my back was open during surgery. I wanted as far away from that thing as I could. I mean, that was like the the thing I did not want to see. So I, I understand that feeling and I understand the fear before going into surgery, it sounds like you were in and out of consciousness. But in that moment, did you know you had to go back in? And so you went back in? Yeah, I knew I had to get back in. And again, it was as, it was as natural as the thought. I mean, I've realized our intentions are so powerful because yes. I thought, how am I going to get back in? But it's, it, it didn't have to figure out how. I just, the intention, I'm going back in. But of course, then, and it was very painful to go back in. I mean, it felt like a lead, you know, blankets had been, it was very heavy, it was very dense. And then, of course, all the physical pain from the injuries, but also the emotional pain and trauma. You know, the guilt, the regret, the, the absolute panic of, um, of the bereavement and losing half the family and what had happened. And also the fear of where is my surviving son and is he okay, you know. And then you have to deal with the physical for so long, too. So that's that's the hardest part. And I think I heard you talking about fearing that the morphine would wipe, wipe away some of your memories. I mean, I was on morphine for nine days. And so I, I know what you mean. I had to I got a sheet of paper on the third day out of ICU and tried to write down what I could because I was afraid in that state that it was going to wipe it away. Who knew that it would be so vivid, you know, all these years later. But when did you first start realizing, okay, you know, I'm different and I've had this profound experience? Well, I, I mean, I knew after that I was different. The interesting thing for me, and I, and, and like you, I was in the hospital for some time. I was in the hospital for almost five months. So I was in ICU for, a, I mean, two and a half, almost three months. But it's almost like I had one foot in this realm and one foot in the next during those times. And yes, I was on a lot of morphine, you know, through those early stages and, and um, gosh, I had a self-admin button, which the only thing that worked on me was my one left hand, but I would admin that morphine until it just knocked me out. And, and um, you know, it, it was a long haul in the hospital. The interesting thing for me is the two profound experiences, because the, the second most profound yeah. experience happened at the end of my hospital stay. So. The two experiences, and the odd thing is I'll never forget them. No matter how much morphine or what I went through, the spiritual things are like yesterday. I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't remember the timelines sometimes of surgeries or what happened or what order, but I knew when I left my body at the scene of the accident, and there was no morphine there. That was right at the scene. And then the second most profound experience was at the end of my hospital stay after I was out of ICU, out of surgical recovery. I was actually in the rehabilitation unit and was only taking some Tylenol for, uh, for pain. But I went back into those realms. I felt all that light again. And yet this time, um, I mean, it was strange. I, I went to sleep. I, I was finally able to lay on my side where the seatbelt had ruptured all my insides. They had finally stabilized that to the point where I could lay on my side. They had had to leave those wounds open for months because of the infection and everything. Well, at this point, I was able to lay on my side, and my younger brother was there, and he was teasing me because I had laid so long on my back, I'd rubbed the back of my head bald, you know? Yes. <laughs> I went to sleep, and I felt that light again. I felt that rush of light surrounding me, and then and, and that rise above the hospital, but I thought, oh, wow, I, I know what this is. I felt this before, and again, suddenly, you know, everything, the pain was gone, and this time the light went away and I was in the most incredible, beautiful place. Um, and the word I use now is I was home. You know, I had always talked about heaven or the other side, but boy, this was home. And it felt so welcoming and I found myself, in fact, I began to run. I was joyfully running, you know, feeling like I'm home, I'm home, I'm home. And... Um, as I did that, and, and the, the strange thing is it felt, I don't know what it was like for you, but I, it felt very physical. It's like I could feel the ground under my feet. It felt like the most physical, sensual experience I had ever had. And yet, you know, 
It, yeah, in in the afterlife, the grass was so green and so beautiful, and the only person I knew in the afterlife was my grandfather. And so I remember my feet in the grass, and I remember you know the feeling yeah. of it, and I remember how beautiful and young he looked. And I yeah, so it was a very it was a very real experience, but I also know what you mean about the intention. So you have a thought that, okay, I'm going to go here. I don't want to be in this hospital room or I want to be back in my body or I need to do this. And I've often wondered, and this is just a philosophical thought, but don't you think we still do this now in our lives, but it just, it's slower. So we have an intention and we're trying to go in that direction, but everything is just so much slower here. It's just so instant yeah. there. Yes, there it was as quick as a thought. This is quick yeah. as a thought. You know. um, and here we have to walk down to the store. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, but the bigger goals too. We have to keep thinking that thought many times to get right. us there. <laughs> right, but everything was super sensory there, and 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 I did have an encounter. In fact, as I as I was just joyfully being home, I got the message that I wasn't there to stay. And I, and I intuitively knew I was to go down this corridor, which was to my left, and so I made my way down the corridor. And actually, that's where I encountered my little toddler son. In fact, he was sleeping in a crib. And uh, gosh, I just swept him up and felt him. And as I held him, I felt an intense presence come up behind me, which was so overwhelming. And, and I, I, I knew I'm in the presence of God, but as I held my little boy, I felt those divine arms wrap around and hold me. And there was a huge download of wisdom, peace, and, and all of those things. But to the point, that was with no morphine. That was at the end of the hospital stay. Yes. And yet that may have been the most profound um, near death or visit to the other side of all of them, you know. And I think I, I describe it as once we've crossed that veil, it's easy to keep crossing that veil, especially in those early moments. And yeah. I couldn't take painkillers as soon as I got home. They were horrible. So I was just taking Tylenol as well. And I felt a lot of healing presence with me. The pain was just incredible. But I closed my eyes and I felt a connection to the angelic realm. And I felt, okay, you know, they're working on my back. They're helping me in this moment. In your long physical recovery, did you feel some of those moments? Did you meditate? Did you know to you know, do these things? I didn't know to do those things yet. That was the interesting thing. Now, I did have nurses, and some of them, I wonder if they were from the Antelicans. <laughs> but I had, I, had, I had some nurses that would come in after hours, and, um, and they would say, let us do some work on you. Now, you know, I mean, I, I was naive to any you know, energy work or light workers or anything like that at that point. But gosh, these nurses would grab my feet and they would just, they would, I suppose they were doing Reiki, but I could feel the effects of it in my body. I could feel the healing going on. And on one occasion, well, on two occasions, there was one time a male nurse that came in and simply washed my hair and I never saw him again. And then there was a very jovial nurse who called herself Moon and we had a very long conversation into the night, um, and it was more of an emotional healing. She was talking about bereavement when we lose people. The only reason I bring that up is usually, and with that long of a hospital stay, I knew the shift nurses. I mean, I knew their names. They were coming, and I realized the gentleman that washed my hair never showed up again, never saw him. The woman named Moon never showed up again. And when I asked the uh, the shift nurse about, Tell, where is Moon coming back? She didn't know who I was. So I've always wondered. So yes, not like you. I didn't feel angelic healing. These were like people literally coming in the room and working on me. But two of them, I I sometimes wonder. Maybe, maybe they maybe. were, but I didn't know. You know. Yeah, perhaps Moon was. <laughs> we're perhaps talking. Yeah. We're talking on the night of a full moon. That's interesting. I know. <laughs> so yeah. So as you began the recovery when you went back home, though, did you? Did you immediately want to hear about near-death experiences, or were you kind of shut off to that? No, I was so, um, I was still so bereaved. I mean, I was yeah. still so bereaved, losing half the family, of course, losing my leg and navigating the wheelchair. I went through a really, really rough time, and I was, yeah. I, I had to stay with my brother and his family for a while, and then getting... Uh, home so I could get Spencer, my surviving son, back in school, and he was only, you know, seven or eight years old. 
I, I was so caught up in how to survive with my new body in the new life that I longed for that. I used to lay down at night completely stressed out thinking, how am I ever going to do this? And I would ask for angelic visits. I would ask, and it wouldn't, and it sometimes it wouldn't, wouldn't happen, you know? <laughs> so there was some long, lonely um, times uh, that way. However, I know I was always looked after. I know they were always there. In fact, I know that my, my first wife, I don't even call her my deceased wife. I call her my angelic wife. She was there the whole time, even though I was unaware of it. And, and I only know that because as the years went on and as I eventually uh, met Tanya and fell in love and, and, and I went to my wife's, my first wife's grave and, and you know, it was like the, I'm having feelings for another woman. Anyway, when that all came about, I felt Tamara leave. And, and when I say that, it was a beautiful thing. She communicated with me. She's like, of course you are. I want you to. I've been, you've been holding me hostage in your grief, in your pain, in all of it, and I can't move on until you are happy and moving on. And so, you know, there was an exchange that way. But when I felt her go, that's when I realized she had been with me the entire time, and I was probably just so used to her presence that I didn't realize it. And that's an interesting story for so many reasons because. A lot of people ask us uh, one about grief, but people also ask us about that connection to people on the other side. And I know that it's real, you know, like, I, and I know that it's real because it's a connection through love. So any moment where I felt in deep need of love or, you know, a moment where I'm really scared for my life, you know, after the near death experience, I felt either my grandfather, or grandmother, or dad there sending that love and energy saying, you know, you're going to be fine, take this path, you know, and I don't even, didn't even think of it as being a medium or you know, connecting to the other <laughs> side in that way. It was just real, you know, and I think a lot of times near-death experiencers have these profound moments and it's just real for us. So your experience sounds incredibly intense and real. Yeah, no, and it was very real to me. And that was another thing I thought, am I losing my mind? I mean, that I really, you know, there was a one point, in fact, I my trauma doc and I had become friends, um, and that's a whole other story, but I was life-lighted into a level, level one trauma center, and one of, the, uh, one of the physicians on staff had an incredible experience where he encountered my deceased wife in the trauma room as they're working Amazing. on me. And he happened to share that with me, um, you know, relatively early on. But we became friends um, simply because I trusted him. If he experienced that, then I could share with him some of the things I had been experiencing. But there was even points that I said to him, okay, this, you know, I, I, this happened. Am I crazy? Should I see a psychiatrist? It's so real to me. Am I losing it? And, you know, of course, he was very kind, and he would always kind of say, you have your own answers. But he, he, he said, no, it's not, it's not crazy if you're having those experiences. Because he asked a couple of questions. He said, is it real to you? And I said, it's incredibly real. And he said, are you getting the message? Is it changing your life? I said, yeah, it is. And he said, then embrace it and not uh, – but I, I, was, I was really kind of concerned that if I talked about those things that were so real to me, people might think I – <laughs> needed some kind of a psychiatric evaluation or something. You know? And we had our near-death experiences around the same time. Mine was 95 or 94 and yep. yours was, what, 97, 98? Yeah, so the world's come a long way since then. But, I mean, it was beginning to open up to that idea. But I'm really curious about your surgeon. So tell me more about his shared near-death ex or his shared death experience. Yeah, well, it was interesting, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it. He's, he's just written a book called Not Yet, where he outlines not only my experience, but other experiences in the ER. He had been a level one trauma ER physician for over 25 years. He tells it that one of the nurses came and got him and said, you've got to come to the trauma room where I was. And she said to him, she's there. And he's like, what do you mean she's there? Who's there? So it wasn't only him. It was another one of the nurses that got him. But he went in there, and they both encountered Tamara, my deceased wife. However, she was there in the trauma room, and he said she was communicating to him specifically. And I said, well, what was she, you know, what was she saying? Yeah. And he said, 
you know, he said she was simply expressing her gratitude for all that we were doing to save your life. And you know, that's actually, that's when I knew he wasn't making it up. I thought that's exactly what Tamara would be doing. And, uh-huh. um, and so we, we kind of became friends and uh, I would share these things with him. And uh, I, had, I had a safe place to, to, to speak to because, and as you know, you talk to family about it and they go, oh, of course you did. And, and you know, your family loves you and that, mine was very supportive. But it was really interesting to have a third-party, unbiased clinician, you know, medical Yeah, doctor. that's wonderful. I, I could say I'm having, you know, and, and dreams. I mean, did you, did, you, did, you, did you ever, I continue to dream. I mean, my, my little son I lost comes to me in dreams, except he's a full-grown, you know, beautiful young man now. He's not the baby that I, that, that I you know, has he left this world. And in my first experience, he was the toddler, but... He comes to me as a full-grown man now. Interesting. You must get a lot of people who are deeply grieving the loss of someone, and, and there's nothing worse, I think, than the loss of a child. What do you say to all these many people who come to you, and what do you, what kind of advice can you give? Because they come to me, too, and I'd really be curious from your perspective. Well, it, it's tough. I mean, because you never know what to say. I mean, we should know what to say, right? We've been through right. And oftentimes, I can only hug them, and I can, I, I mean, I have no idea what they're going through, simply because I only know what it was like for me, but I can say, I went through my own pain, be patient with yourself, and of course, I can tell them, they're never really gone, you know, just wait, but that, that doesn't ring true to someone who's just lost a child, or just lost a spouse, or like, no, they're gone, you know, and it's like... Yeah. Yes, you don't see them in this realm, but just watch what they'll do in the angelic realms as they support and cheer you on and become literally your guardian angels. And people want confirmation right away, and yeah. when they don't get it, they're upset. And I often tell them, but it might not be five years for you. You don't know when that confirmation is coming. I mean, I was lucky to have confirmation from my grandparents before my dad died and to have constant confirmation from my dad and until there was a, a brief point when I didn't but you know that information was important for me you know at that time so yeah. for others it might be you know they go through the natural grieving process and I did I, I remember being shocked that even though I had the spiritual connection I still had a physical grief that just yeah. floored me like I had never experienced a depression like that where food didn't taste good and you know, I was like deeply depressed when my dad died. And so I know that, you know, people have to be tender with themselves. Like it's a real physical process that you go yeah. through. Yep. And that's the main thing is be patient with yourself as you go through it. I mean, it, it, it is a process. And, and I, I often say, you'll never really get over it. You know, you'll get used to it. You'll get used to it. But, um, but yeah, I think often we're grieving so hard we can't feel the influences because we're so trapped in our own grief. And that's that's how I was, you know. Yeah. So I'm curious now, you're going to this conference in Austin and you're leading this workshop. Yeah. I want to hear more about how you interact with others and what gifts you think you bring to these, this community of people who are so interested in our experiences Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm going to be, the workshop specifically, I mean, I'm going to be speaking about the, you know, my near-death experience and expounding way deeper into all those things. Then we're doing a workshop together. Dr. Mary Neal and I are going to be, you know, a dynamic duo in that simply because we both had the near-death experience. We both had severe, you know, physical injuries. We've both lost a child. And she was told, her, her child passed away many years later, but she was told in her near-death experience that that would happen, and it actually played out. We're going to be talking not only about the near-death experience, but we're going to be focusing on the wisdom that we gain in everyday life, that you don't have to have a near-death experience to have that spiritual connection, and that you can truly um, stay connected, not only with deceased loved ones, but just with those heavenly, you know, divine realms in your life without having to go through all the trauma to be there. Yeah, so when I meditate on that love of God, that unconditional love of God, I feel so much better in my own life. And I think that that's one thing that other people can do is just meditate on how beautiful that experience is. 
maybe we're good at translating that for other people who haven't had that experience, you know, that maybe that's part of our, our uh, joy that we give to them. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to be doing an exercise. This is something I've done before um, where anybody, I mean literally anybody can, can feel what it's like to get that message from the other side and know that it's for them and actually know exactly who it's from many times too. We're going to do a little exercise like that. But, um, but yeah, we all have that ability. The near-death experience might open some doors and windows and they never really close, but we all have that ability if we're simply open to it. And I love meditating. I mean, I used to I used to pray, and you know, oh, I'd say, you know, I'd say very, you know, <laughs> prayers. Now it's not about talking; it's about shutting up and listening, and just receiving, you know, receiving the answers. Yeah. There's even some judgment in that. Like I see people pray, and they're kind of like, "Oh, I just gave a good prayer," you know, out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "But hey, if you're better at listening, that's the <laughs> that's the yeah. truth, because <laughs> yeah, God has some profound things to say." <laughs> Yeah, I've realized it's just better if I shut my mouth and listen. It's a lot better. <laughs> yeah, so I'm also curious about there are different, there seem to be different waves. So I think I heard you say somewhere that it took about 10 years to fully process the near death experience. At this 20 year mark, what do you feel now? And that seems to be a big marker for a lot of near death experiencers. Yeah, um, you know, I'm settling into it. And what shifted is, is it's like, I want to make a difference. You know, I mean, in the first while it was about me and how I healed and my experience and talking about that. Now it's like, what, what's my contribution to the world? You know, I mean, how can I take what I know or take what I've learned and really, really make a difference? I, I don't want to go back home and say, hey, I, you know, I didn't do what I was there to do. And and I'm really here at this point after 20 years to take a stand for love and unity. And I've come to the conclusion that heaven's right here if we choose to make it that way. And it's up to us. We're, you know, humankind is going to have to come together and uh, resolve our own problems and bring our own love to make it heaven right here. Yes, and there's a lot of suffering on this earth. And one thing that this is what I have determined is my mission from now until the end, and that is simply to send light and healing in any way that I can, whether that's through making a video, whether that's through talking to people, whether that's through giving comfort in this moment-to-moment -moment teaching experience, and whether it's even through transcendental meditation, whether I'm sitting on a mountaintop and just sending that light and love into troubled areas, like that is my essential meaning in life is just to give love. And it's not, and that shift happened, I think around 2008 for me, where it, it became evident that it wasn't about what I'm getting, it's really about what I'm giving. Yeah. And that's that's the huge shift. And then you feel great, you know, as that yeah. love comes through you. It's not <laughs> Well, I think those things are very real. I mean, when yeah. you send light, when you send love, I believe that when we look at that from the other side, you're gonna see the difference that, that those made that um that were committed to love and were sending out that intention to heal, you know, to, to bind up the brokenhearted and to heal those that are grieving and, and to do their part, which may be done very quietly behind closed doors, but it does make a difference. That stuff's very real to me. To me too. And that is, that's what I saw in my life review is how much love I gave or didn't give. And I wasn't judged, you know, but I did see, and I think I judged myself a little that I wanted to give more love, you know, that I wanted to be less judgmental and that I really Anytime I make an effort and I wake up that morning and I think, okay, today is about love, then it's just a day that flows so much better. And that's that's something we could definitely teach, I think, through these workshops and through connecting with others. And, and, and that's a wonderful experience. So another question that I had that I think I heard you talk about that I, I related to was that you couldn't wear a watch the, that time just seems so like just ridiculous to you after the near-death experience I broke yeah. five watches and I just gave I still, up I still don't wear a watch I have some nice little you know dangly bracelet things but um, <laughs> but watches don't work they break computers often won't work electronics don't want don't don't they don't like me but yeah, time became irrelevant. I mean, I, I, I had a very strong sense that all I had was now, and you mentioned that, you know, I mean, yesterday is gone, and I have no idea what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. 
but boy, I have now, and in this sacred moment, I can choose how I'm going to be, how I'm going to project, and what kind of love I'm going to share. And that's that, that, yeah, I don't wear a watch. It just seems irrelevant to me. I'm pretty good at predicting time. I don't know if you are too, but I can usually get it within 10 to 15 minutes, so I'm not too far off. Well, <laughs> so I'm, I'm usually on time. I actually make it on time, but, uh, but yeah. It's, don't, uh, it's funny, that timelessness. It's, yeah, I came back here and I felt so much happier, even though, and, you know, my extent of, of recovery was about nine months, so it wasn't probably as extensive as yours, but I had to learn to walk again and I had to, you know, take it slow. And so I was joyful, though, every step, instead of like looking at that pain, I was like, thank you, God, thank you, God, for yes. every step, for every step. And so that, that kind of joy was part of my recovery. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if you felt some of that too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I and that's what I love about you, Trisha, is you, you get it. I mean, you get it. It is a gift. Life is a gift. And that was the biggest shift. I thought it was a test. No, it's a gift. And every step, gosh, let's take it in gratitude because had it gone another way, I might have still been in that wheelchair. And there's plenty of people that Me are. Too. A dear friend that's you know, quadriplegic. I mean, he's never going to walk. And so, like I say, you don't have to look very far to say, wow, I really am lucky. I really am blessed. And then how can I serve those that um, that are around me in a way that works, you know? Yeah. And we'll end with this question, but it's one, it's something that I heard you say in an interview and it made a lot of sense to me, but you talked about healing a childhood wound of yours of feeling inadequate. And for me, you know, there were so many wounds in, in childhood, you know, <laughs> I had a lot <laughs> to heal. You know, my parents had a bad relationship. I grew up poor, you know, there was some abuse and neglect. And so there was a lot within me that even after this profound near death experience, you know, it took a good while to work out a lot of these things. And, and what I've learned, you know, over time and what I'm trying to communicate in the book that I've written to and really to a lot of kids who have gone through abuse and have survived yeah. it is that, you know, it connected me to so many other people. I'm not the only one who struggle and people have struggled in far worse situations. And if I could learn to love myself, then I'm that beacon of light to show someone else that it's possible to, to love oneself. So that was a, that's something that I've learned. But what was something that you learned through your journey about things that were from your past that you had to heal? Well, and this is on the back side of it. This is that 20 year mark. I've finally come to the conclusion that we're always enough. I, I mean, I did. I, from a very early age, I always felt inadequate. I wasn't enough. I overachieved to make up for it. I had loving parents. They were divorced, but gosh, they were great. You know, it was self-imposed. That's what I realized is I impose on myself um, yeah. for the most part. But at this point, self-love is the key. You've come to the same conclusion I have, that if I can love and accept myself, then I'm filled with love, and therefore then I can give abundantly to others in a way that really, really does send a ripple effect out of healing and, and of the world shifting into a higher consciousness. Yeah, it's so interesting. Do you, and this is, I know I said that was my last question, but are you still in contact with your your wife, or did that pretty much end your first wife? Um, no, no, she's very much, she's she's very much in contact. In fact, she, uh, my, my current wife has had many. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, many, many uh, situations where they've communicated, especially in raising Spencer, and of course Spencer's mm -hmm. now 28, he just turned 28 yesterday, he's grown up, married, and Wow. Yeah, uh, you know, away things go, but um, but no, my uh, my that's why I say my angelic wife is still very much in our lives, and I say our lives, the whole family's life. They really are our guardian angels. They don't go away. They're just in a different realm, doing what they can do from that perspective, which may be far greater than what they can do from this <laughs> this realm. How beautiful. Yeah, not many people have that knowledge, but that's wonderful that you can connect with it and and express it in that way. Oh yeah. Well, and that you know, knowing this new book is all about that. I mean, it goes right up into very recently when uh, and Griffin and Tamara are very much involved in my life and in in many lives around me. So, yeah. And how has he been involved in your life? Oh, Griffin is awesome. He um 
he comes, he is my most mighty guardian angel. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he feels like he's my protector, he's my motivator, and yet one of the most beautiful things, um, and, and I'll share this briefly, but he came to me in a dream where he, and I say dream, I think it's a visit. I was somewhat, it was one of those lucid dreams, but I was literally remembering being a little child and I was thinking in the dream, gosh, I remember this like yesterday. I couldn't have been any more than about 14 months old. And that's when it hit me. That's how old Griffin was when he left this world. Well, in that instance, everything in the dream kind of faded away. And there he was standing there as a grown young man. And he, I wanted to rush to him, but he kind of sent to me you know, telepathically that he wanted me to remember being a child. Because he wanted me to know that he would never forget being my little boy. And that he would never forget what it was like to have me as his dad. And, of course, at that point, he did speak. And he said, I have a message for you. And I ran to him. And I was able to get to him. And I embraced him. And it felt very, like, you know, very real dream or visit. And, you know, I thought he was going to say something so profound, you know, or, or give me some guidance in my life but he leaned into my ear and um, he, <laughs> I get emotional when I talk about it he said dad I love you and I'm proud of you mm-hmm. and that's it you know but of course mm-hmm. I was just gushing <laughs> and, and woke up mm-hmm. or, came to, or came to myself still with the tears thinking what more profound message would I want than this little boy who I lost as a toddler who has watched my life and been involved in my life and has been my guardian angel, still loves me, is still proud of me in spite of it all. And and that was very meaningful. So Oh, that is. And I do believe that they give us what we need most, you know, like in a loving way because they're with that light and they're with that unconditional love and so they know how to communicate it to us. I I was initially worried when my dad died that I didn't have enough time with him. He had brain cancer and so that last month I had nine classes to teach so I was running in the evenings just to be with him and I had only so much energy and so much time and the first thing he said to me in one of those visitations was, hey I used up all my energy just with you and then I slept the rest of the day so don't worry (laughs) like like I lived for you in those moments and you were there plenty and it just was this huge relief like oh okay I did the best I could and it was good enough for him and so I think that that love and that comfort that they give us is amazing thank you for sharing that story and and thanks for talking with me. This went so quickly. I, I relate to your story in so many ways. We could just yeah, keep talking. Well, but I can't wait to see you in Austin. It's going to be fun to yeah. connect, and we have so much in common. And thank you um, sincerely for, for the conversation and having me on the, on the show. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. And please subscribe to this show, and I will put a link to other interviews with Jeff Olson at the bottom. And I would love to keep up with you. Thank you very much, and may you be blessed.